So tonight we will be jumping into part three of uh, God's redemptive plan for Israel. If you didn't get the notes, they're there in the back. And we printed, Alicia printed extra notes from last week. In case you missed last week and you wanted the notes, they're there. You can grab them. And so go ahead and we'll just take a moment and let you get those. want to encourage you too as we give these notes it's helpful to follow along you know as we're teaching but it's also for your benefit like later as you're studying to just really if you want to take some time with it and just go through and look at all the bible verses that we reference there's a lot of times we'll put lists of bible verses in there to establish certain truths that you can look up and um, you know these outlines can function for that in your own study or if you have other, uh, you know, groups that you meet with, maybe in your house, church, or other environments, you're welcome to take the notes and use them to, to have a Bible study with. Um, you can erase my name off the top, put your name on there. Totally take it and use it. We, years ago, we, we learned this from... Uh, Mike Bickle, one of our spiritual papas, and he said, uh, he said, our copyright is the right to copy, so copy away. <laughs> then he had to amend it and say, well, not with any of our music, <laughs> all the contracts and stuff. But any of the notes, you can completely use them and tell everybody it was your revelation. You don't want to lie. Tell them the Lord ministered to you along these lines there you go it's nice and generic so that we that's why we make notes available we do it on sundays do it on wednesdays so for you to use them for those purposes more study to uh you know to follow along during the teaching for more study on yourself uh, on your own private time and then to, to share with others and, and and use for your own um group studies all right <clears throat> so um good so last week we looked primarily at why Paul said that Israel is important. And we unpacked eight distinctive reasons from Romans 9 that Paul gave us. And we went through that in detail. And then um, tonight we're going to shift gears over to Romans 11. And, uh, and we're going to lay out this plan a little bit. And next week we'll, we'll kind of finish up with... Uh, going through the details of that plan that's laid out in Romans 11. But there's a, there's a four-part plan that Paul explains in Romans 11 about how God is going to bring about salvation to the nations and to Israel. And he, he makes it really, really clear in there that there's four specific things that are taking place. And those things are happening uh, according to the will of God. It's what God's had in mind from the ages past. And so 
Um, we Again, we want to get our understanding from the scripture on these things. We don't want to get it from the news media. Amen. Or from our social media feeds. Hallelujah. Uh, we get it from the scriptures. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the unshakable foundational truth that shows us exactly how God's unpacking his kingdom. And so Romans 11 is insightful in that. It's giving us uh, in insight into God's unfolding plan of the ages. So uh, there's a four-part plan that we'll go through. I'll introduce that tonight, and then we'll go through it in detail next week. But I want to start with two really important distinctions Whenever you talk about uh, Israel, the Jewish people, you find this, that there's these, these two ditches that people will get into. And there's many ditches along the road of truth. There's many ditches. But I find that this comes out so often. And uh, that I just, wanted to, I just wanted to start tonight by, by um, addressing two ditches. So one we've already addressed, but I, and so I won't spend as much time on it. The other one I'll spend a little more time on. So the one ditch on the one side of the road is uh, this idea that the church has somehow replaced Israel. Now, we talked about that last week. Hazen talked about it uh, the first week in the series. So I won't spend a ton of time on it. But if you want a single verse in the New Testament that will help you end that argument really, really quickly, I've given it to you. <laughs> so Romans 11.1 1 is a real easy go-to verse uh, when somebody goes, well, you know, Israel, they're, they're rejected and they're counted out. You can go right to Romans 11, 1, and it kind of, it will settle that conversation really quickly. So the first ditch that we're going to distinguish and, and give truth on is this idea that uh, the church has replaced Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. Look at Romans 11, 1. Paul says it very, very clearly. I say then... Has God cast away, in this phrase, his people? His people. He says, certainly not, with an exclamation point that the translators added, but certainly not, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he would go on in verse 2, and he'd say, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And so the, the uh, emphatic statement is it settles this issue in a, in a dynamic way, and there's, there's really three things. A is Paul's emphasis. This emphatic declaration is a, is a big thing. God has not cast off his people. Secondly, um, he makes this point as, a, as, a, uh, as an evidence that he hasn't cast off Jews, and he, the point is that he's a Jew. He goes, I myself am a Jew. He goes, see, see, I'm really here. You know, I really believe in Messiah. He goes, I am a Jew of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. If God had cast us all off, I wouldn't be here. That's the point he's making. And then thirdly, that phrase, his people, that's a big deal. Because oftentimes the argument will say, well, after the cross, the church is the new Israel, and it will, it will go on that way, and they'll actually try to use some of Paul's 
some of Paul's letters to, to, to describe this, that Israel is no longer the people of God. But Paul still uses this idea that Israel is his people. And he's not talking about his people salvifically. He's talking about them covenantally. That they're a covenant nation that God has engaged with that's different than all the other nations of the earth. And, and so he literally uses this his people phrase on this side of the cross, which is really, really instructive to us and lets us know that it's not about, um, you know, there's a, now a spiritual Israel or, or anything of that nature, but that there is a clear um, connection and covenantal promise that's still intact for Israel. Okay. So uh, the second point then would be this other ditch um, that, you know, if you get on the one side, you go, okay, God hasn't replaced Israel with the church. Okay, good. And then what you'll find is on this other side, there, there's all sorts of trains of, of teaching and trains of thought that almost present Jews as having some sort of like easier way to salvation or some sort of uh, like get out of hell free card just because they're Jews. And uh, I've seen it and it's expressed in a variety of ways, but I want to I wanna just drive this point home. When we're saying that uh, God has covenantal promises for Israel, when we're saying that Israel's still God's people and things of that nature, we're not saying that Israel that the Jews don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. They have to get born again through Jesus, through Messiah. They don't get, thank you, Lord. They don't get uh, just some entry because of their national heritage. I just appreciate the Lord giving me physical thunder to emphasize certain points. Um, and so look at Romans 10, 12. I just, I want to get this real clear in your mind because you'll, you'll run into this from time to time. You'll run into this. Well, you know, the Jews, they're all, they're all saved. You know, they're all going to get in. And, and uh, you know, you'll see at times Christians treating unsaved Jewish people as if they are part of the one new man, as, as if they are part of the, the born-again bride and they are not. Unsaved Jews are not born again by virtue of their nationality or their religious or cultural heritage. That's just not real. And, and so we really need to recognize that, that Jews have to get saved just like Gentiles. Like that's a big point. So look at Romans 10, 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. There is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. Now, some of you who know Romans 10, you know that's the big salvation chapter. Romans 10, 9 and 10. For if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the mouth confession is made unto righteousness and with the heart we believe unto salvation, right? And Paul, verse 12, is now putting that, that disclaimer 
onto those powerful salvation verses. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The idea is all have to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. Amen. And so a key error is that somehow the Jews uh, are, are, you know, have this automatic ticket to salvation just because they're Jews. But the Bible is clear. The New Testament is clear. There's salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. And so it's only through Jesus that Jews can come into the salvific promises of the gospel, okay? That is a major, major, major point. And when we talk about land promises and God's working with the nation, he will establish things naturally and move things around naturally speaking unto bringing salvation to the whole nation that they can inherit the fullness of the promises that God made to Abraham which are salvation, this heritage of being a nation that expresses God to all the nations of the earth, and a covenantal land promise. But that land promise, hear me out, that land promise is for a believing remnant of Jews. It's not just for anybody who calls themselves a Jew. And so a lot of times the confusion that comes in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians about Paul's descriptions of who's an actually a Jew, like in Romans 2, he says it's the one that whose, whose heart is connected in faith. And he's describing how those covenantal promises are to what we would say are born-again Jews. That's who's going to ultimately inherit those promises. Now... Uh, when a Jewish person, I just want to put this in here, just make it really, really clear. Verse 3, when a Jewish, I mean, uh, verse 3, number 3. These are not Bible verses, these are my notes. Let's not get that wrong. <laughs> right after I said, let's make it really, really clear. All right, number 3, when a Jewish person gets born again, they become part of the church. Okay? The church is a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation all following Jesus, okay, the Jewish Messiah. <laughs> That's who the church is, all the believers in the Jewish Messiah. And so Paul describes this in, in Ephesians chapter 2 as one new man. He says we are all put together, at, you know, in Christ Jew and Gentile in one body, we are one new man in him. Now, oftentimes in the West, we use Ephesians 2 as a, a um, springboard to talk about uh, cultural unity, especially when we're talking about racial reconciliation in, in, in the United States. We use Ephesians 2 as a, an explanation of that chapter and, and uh, an explanation of that uh, reality. But that chapter is specifically about Jews and Gentiles being brought together in one body, one new man in Jesus. So when a Jew gets born again, they become part of the church, part of this one new man. That does not mean, though, that they lose their Jewishness. Just like if you were German and got born again, you don't lose your Germanish. 
if you were Kenyan, if you were wherever, United Statesian, whatever you are, you don't lose your national cultural heritage, okay? You get born again into Christ, and so there's, there's, there's these weird uh, fringes that think, well, if, if a Jew gets saved, then they're no longer a Jew. No, they're completely a Jew. They're actually the fullness of what a Jew is supposed to be. They're believing in Messiah, and they're part of the church. And the church is not just Gentiles. And the church isn't the building we go to tonight or on the weekends. The church is a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Amen. And so these, these are just confusing points that sometimes we don't have clarity on. I know you might be thinking, well, that's pretty elementary. I, I'm telling you, there is so much discussion and dialogue. It, people can get really sideways on some of the most simple thoughts and so, uh, lastly, this, God still has these national purposes for the nation of Israel that have not been given to other nations, all right? Now, oftentimes, you'll hear, like, well, the redemptive calling on our city is ABC, or the redemptive calling on our nation is this, that, and the other, and and people have these prophetic promises over their city, over their nation. And, 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 and I agree. I love all that. Uh, I believe we've got prophetic promises over Atlanta that are powerful and unique. But none of those cities with prophetic promises or nations with prophetic promises have anything close to the Bible verses that are given by God over the nation of Israel. And so I appreciate all the prophetic promises. I love all of them. They are not on par with scripture. And the only nation that has scriptural covenantal promises is the nation of Israel. And I would add a little asterisk because the Lord mentions, I'll just give you this verse to put on your notes and look at it later. Isaiah 19 Maybe we'll get into that a little bit next week, maybe. Or maybe for another time. But the Lord actually says that there are three nations that he has his eye on. He says it's Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. It says Israel will be one of three that will enter into this, this joyous encounter of worshiping God. And so Assyria is 14 what would, be, what would be 14 Middle Eastern, uh, primarily Muslim nations currently. Well, there's massive revival coming to that part of the, the earth. Egypt is going to have massive revival, which Isaiah 19 makes really, really clear. In fact, the revival in Egypt and the revival in the Middle East is going to be so significant that the Lord says that those two nations, which is really 15 nations, but it's Assyria and Egypt, Assyria being 14 nations, those two nations will be on par with the covenantal people, Israel. And he's talking about the, the penetration of the gospel. He's talking about the salvific experience that they're all going to come in together. And, and so I put a little asterisk out behind my statement because I said there's no nation that has any other promises. I go asterisk, there's this little thing over there about these guys that have these kind of promises. But not even close to the volume of chapters 
the volume of covenantal promises, even those not even close to the volume of covenantal promises given to Israel. Those are still intact. That's why Paul still calls them his people. And the inheritors of those promises are going to be believers in their Messiah. So let's not get it confused. That's how these things are going to come to pass. All right. So let's now look, and I'll encourage you um, to take the notes away and to read Romans 11 nice and slow with these notes right out next to it. And uh, let's look at the notes here, and I'm going to give you a brief overview of what's going on in Romans 11. Now, I know that um, Romans 9 through 11, oftentimes it's used in Calvinist and Armenian debates. I am quite confident this was not in Paul's mind at all. Uh, Paul didn't know uh, John Calvin. He didn't know Arminius. Um, he predates them quite, quite a bit. He's dealing with the issue of Jews being welcomed back into the church of Rome because they've been kicked out of Rome by Claudius and welcomed back by Nero. So he's having to work through the covenantal promises that God had given to the Jewish people and the fact that uh, the majority of Jews had made themselves enemies of the gospel while there was still a, uh, a remnant who was believing in Messiah. And so then he's having to work through the enmity of the hour, which was a massive, massive cultural enmity between Jew and Roman. And he's having to break down and explain what's going on with the promises given to Israel and how the Roman church or the Gentile church is supposed to think about those promises. And so this is all in play. Paul is speaking on three or four levels all at the same time in, in the book of Romans. So what he's doing here in verse 1, we've already touched that, is he establishes this fact that Israel has not been completely cut off. Because they have not been cast away. That is not true. And so he's actually fighting that same lie in his day that we hear propagated even in our day. He says, this is not what's gone on. God actually had a purpose for them from even before time. He says there was a, a foreknown purpose. There was a, a plan that he was going to enact through Abram, Abraham. And, and so we have this, this uh, sort of preconceived purpose of God that we see through Abram's line, Abraham's line. All right, so then in verse 2 through 10, here's what he's going to do. He's going to quote three of the fathers that he talked about. Remember, he says they are so important because of the fathers being one of the issues, one of the, one of the historic uh, Jewish fathers. He quotes three of them. He quotes Elijah, he quotes Moses, and he quotes David. And what's he doing? He's establishing this concept that some in Israel are a part of a remnant who are believers. And then some in Israel have rejected Messiah and they are under blindness. And what he's doing in verse 2 through 10 is he's saying this whole thing that some would, would accept Messiah and some would reject, God 
is moving through that entire thing because he's going to use their rejection of Messiah to bring salvation to all the earth. Now that is shocking. Here's why. The prophets understood that if Israel would follow Jehovah, if they would say yes to him, that he would use Israel to propagate the nations with the knowledge of him. That's what he promised. He says, I'm going I'm to bless all the nations through you, Abraham. So this is a continual theme all the way through the Old Testament that, that God's going to use Israel to bring salvation to the nations. So Israel, we know this, they have these seasons of obedience and then unbelief. Obedience and then unbelief. So they're in and they're out, these backslidings. And God is having to deal with them in their backslidings. When Messiah shows up, the majority says no. And a minority says yes. He calls that a remnant. The remnant says yes and the majority says no. And here's how how shocking and awesome God is. He's already set up the plan that if Israel says yes to Messiah, all the nations will get the glory of God and the gospel through Israel. But if they say no, he's going to use their blindness, their, their, being, their uh, hardness of heart, he's going to use that as an opportunity to get the nations into the gospel anyway. And so that's what he's explaining through this passage, that God's purpose through Israel, it's not going to be revoked. He's going to use them to bring the gospel to the nations one way or another. And so he establishes that in verse 2 through 10. And then in verse 11 through 16, he describes how through their stumbling, how through their, their darkness in their minds, how salvation has come to all the nations. And when you think it through, you just, it, it's just mind-boggling. And that's where Paul's going to get to in a minute. He's going to go, oh man, the riches of the depths of the knowledge of God. Who can comprehend how he leads? And so now he's using Israel's hardness and their blindness as a means for the Gentiles to get the gospel. And so what he's going to say is this, that uh, if their being blinded ends up with the gospel going to the Gentiles, how much more will their acceptance of Messiah bring glory to the nations? In other words, if they enter into what they're called to be, what will end up happening to the nations? He says it will be life from the dead. And so here's the point. We, I know we love to quote, uh, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We love that verse. What we don't realize is that verse is specifically talking about the age to come after the Lord Jesus returns. And what he's talking about is when God's glory, it wraps the planet. The nation that's going to lead the earth and manifesting God's glory to the planet is going to be Israel. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord and the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And it's from there that all the nations of the earth will experience Jesus. Think about this. Jesus the word, teaching the word 
to everyone on the planet. His glory will cover the earth as water covers the sea. That's coming. It's coming through Israel. And the Lord's point that he's making in Romans 11 is it's coming one way or another. And so he says, if them being broken off brings mercy to Gentiles, how much more them being grafted, regrafted in, how much more their acceptance of Messiah, how much more will that bring, uh, bring life from the dead, resurrection, glory to the nations? So he establishes that in verse 11 through 16. And then verse 17 through 24, he goes, now, now that we've got it clear, God's using Israel one way or another. He goes, he goes, you guys, you Gentiles. He goes, so there were natural branches of this olive tree called the kingdom of God that were broken off. And you, being from a wild olive tree, you were grafted in. He goes, don't get haughty. Don't boast. Don't think you're better than you are. Don't have an attitude about those branches that were broken off. And he goes through this really stern warning, and he says, if they were broken off because of unbelief, he goes, you could be broken off too. He, he goes, get your attitude together. And when you read those seven verses, you're like, yes, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. I will, I will have a good attitude. And that's why we emphasize this point so strongly that the church hasn't replaced Israel. Israel's not cast off because Paul is so intense in those verses about this. And his warning is so strong. I, I, made a, I alluded to this last week, but man, when you see people, believers, having a negative attitude towards Israel... Man, you just got to take them right to Romans 11 and ask them to read those, those uh, seven verses. Because undoubtedly, Paul, the spirit of revelation and the spirit of prophecy, he's writing the scriptures. He is giving a warning that the Lord is having him to give because he knows that the tide of anti-Semitism is going to rise in the earth. And even believers are going to turn negative on Israel. And when you look at the history of the church, uh, it's shocking. The different names, the different theologians, uh, many with such amazing revelation and such powerful, positive impact on the church through generations. And then you read their writings about the Jewish nation, and it is painful because they did not heed Paul's warning. And, uh, and so clearly that warning wasn't just to the guys in the church of Rome at that time. It was to all believers in all time because this was going to be a massive temptation as the rise of anti-Semitism, as, as, as it fills the earth, even believers could be swept away with that deception. Paul goes, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. He goes, you need to have a, a reverence in your heart about the way God's chosen, the way God's picked, and this covenantal people. So then uh, verse 25 through 27, that's where we get the four parts. That's where we get the, the clear explanation that he's driving towards. And, and I'll, I'll explain the four parts uh, in just a moment. 
but the four parts to God's plan is right there. He, he lays it out in the different parts of this chapter, but he, he says it very succinctly right there. And he describes this, that there is what's called a fullness of Gentiles that are going to come in to salvation. And then there is a fullness of Jews that will come in to salvation. And that fullness of Gentiles, that's the full number of Gentiles that are appointed to salvation in this age in full maturity. That's the idea, this fullness of the Gentiles. We call that the great Gentile harvest. Call it what you want, revival to the nations, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the glory of God hitting all over the earth. We see the, these people before the throne in Revelation 7. They're from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They are, they are the fullness of the Gentiles that are coming in. And it's from that testimony of this this massive Gentile harvest that comes in across the nations, it's from that testimony that all Israel ultimately gets saved. And he describes this unique thing that's going to happen. They're going to provoke. The Gentiles are going to provoke the Jews to jealousy. That is a mysterious thought about the way God is lining this up. He goes, okay, guys, I mean, just think about it. He goes, Israel, you're my covenant people. I've got all this for you. Look at all this stuff, seven covenants. It's going to be amazing. Oh, you don't like that? Huh, okay. Well, there'll be a remnant that's going to still like it. Most of you don't. That's fine. I am going to reach everyone else, and when I reach everyone else, they are going to love me so much. They are going to be so amazing, radical in love. They're going to manifest the glory of God. This wide open Gentile harvest is going to experience the glory of God in such a, a shocking way. You're going to actually see that glory on these Gentiles. And you who I'm covenanted with, you're going to actually get jealous. You've got all these covenants and you're going to look at Gentile nations. You're going to be jealous because you're going to see my love manifest in them and through them in a way that was promised to you. Now just consider the wonder of that. I'm just going to just, just do this a little bit more because it's just too good. When Christians, when Gentile believers think about where is God taking the church, so often we, just, we don't have any vision for what I've just described. But this is what God says his plan is. So most Gentile believers think, well, our, our church, we, you know, we just want to have like, we just want to have like a thousand people and, you know, like good worship. If we could get a live stream that worked all the time, that'd be awesome, you know. And it's like, that's the ultimate of the vision that so many churches in the West have. Or we want to be multi-site, or we want to be multi-campus, or we want to, you know, ABC. But find me the people that are saying yes to God's plan that he lays out in Romans 11, 25, 26, and 27. Where he says there's going to be a massive Gentile harvest and then all Israel will get saved. And that Gentile harvest is provoking Jews to jealousy. That's how we're wrapping up this age. Find me the people that are embracing what he says is his plan 
that are thinking, I want to get so radical in love for, with God, so manifesting the love of God, so filled with the glory of God, that my life, it provokes hard-hearted, atheistic Jews to want to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to want to know the Messiah that I'm following. What about that for a vision? <laughs> that, was, that was God's vision, and that's what Paul was laying out, and that needs to be in the identity of the church right now, that we would be a people so filled with the glory, so evidencing Yahweh's touch on our lives that we're provoking even hard-hearted Jews to say, they've got something, I need to know what that is. Does that make sense? And, uh, and I just think that uh, so often we are, we're devotionally connected to the Bible. Sometimes we are doctrinally connected to it, but we're not connected to the drama. There's an unfolding drama of the kingdom in Romans 11, 25, and 26. It makes it super, super clear. And that's why that Isaiah 19 passage is so interesting. Because, again, Assyria with Egypt being one of three with Israel, they're going to be in such unity and love at the end of the age, so given and serving Jesus the Messiah. Like, that's coming on the earth. But have you thought about this? Those 14 nations that would be historic Assyria, that's the, all the Middle Eastern nations. They're mostly all Muslim nations. What has to happen in those nations for them to be like so tight in love with Jesus that they actually are provoking Israel? What, what has to happen on the earth for that to happen? For Egypt to be provoking Israel. I mean, this is a stunning idea, but even more than that, I just preached it so it's on my mind, now I'm just sort of ranting, but John 17, that they would be one as you and I are one, I'm telling you, it's not mostly about even how I preached it on Sunday, just you and the person next to you that you don't like so much or the person across the room that you don't really get along with. I mean, yes, it applies to that. But it really is about the historic animosity between Jew and Gentile actually dissolving at the foot of the cross. And Jews seeing Gentiles in the Middle East falling in love with Jesus and then loving them. Do you, do, can you catch that? And so these dynamics of this unfolding story in God's plan for Israel... They have to be in our minds as we're proceeding in our progress in the gospel and in the church, as we're growing in Christ, that he's going to make us into a people that is so alive and in love with Jesus that we provoke even hard-hearted, agnostic, and atheistic Jews to want to know Jesus the Messiah. I'll tell you a, a quick story um, because it, it, it's, it's pertinent to today. So today's August 25th. Um, so three years ago today, right about this time, we were driving away from Stone Mountain because we just finished 
one race stone mountain where we gathered 25,000 believers, 500 churches. And we stood on top of Stone Mountain. We renounced historic racism and dead religion. We covenanted uh, to, to stand against that and to stand for revival and, and reconciliation. Well, the Lord spoke to me before we did the gathering. And that, that whole movement came out of, the, out of our prayer room, out of the house of prayer. And, and we were right there front and center helping, giving leadership to, to all of it. But the Lord spoke to me about our gathering. And he told me we needed to stand in repentance uh, of anti-Semitism toward the Jews before we addressed the uh, historic racism from uh, the white majority to the African Americans in, in, in America. And I was, I was dumbfounded. I, I understand it, that the seminal sin of racism is anti-Semitism. I get that, the, the foundational sin. But I was like, how are we going to weave that in? We, have, we, have, we like had nothing like that in the narrative. It didn't have any relationships. And through a, a series of events, we ended up with a connection to the guy who is the head of the American Jewish Council. He has 100,000 American Jews that listen to his leadership, his podcast, his newsletter, all this stuff. Well, that, that, that leader was available to us and was willing to come and hear our repentance. And he wasn't messianic. This is not a Jewish believer in Jesus. This is a Jewish believer, Jewish. He was Jew, not a Jewish believer, just a, a Jewish man. And uh, not a believer in Jesus. And, and he, was, he was, you know, he, he was cool, younger guy, 45-ish. And he just said, you know, what are you trying to do on the day? And I said, well, and I tell him the whole story. And I said, I, we believe we need to repent of anti-Semitism before we uh, uh, repent of uh, racism. And he said, okay, I'm in, I'll come. And I, and I said, listen, I go, we're not gonna try to convert you guys. That, that's not what we're there for that day. Because they were, they were asking about it. And, and I said, that we're not gonna, but I said, it is a revival meeting. People will be declaring Jesus is Lord. We're gonna be preaching the gospel. It, it's gonna be wide open. And, and, and like, I don't, like, I'm not sure if he's ever been to an, a meeting like this. And it's him and an older man. And so they come. And I mean, they're standing on, so they're standing on top of Stone Mountain with us. And there's people as far as the eye can see. There's thousands on top of Stone Mountain. The band is blowing up. Joy's leading. We want revival now. I mean, it's exploding. <laughs> and so we get into the prayer portion on the top of the mountain. And I invite this, these two leaders over. I said, before we do anything, and I give the, a quick snippet of how the seminal sin of racism is anti-Semitism. It's hatred for the image of God, firstly in the Jewish people. And, uh, and I publicly repent to this man and ask him to forgive me for centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. And they are moved. They were, they were greatly moved. And... And, uh, I mean, we looked deep into each other's eyes, and, and um, I, I just repented to him on behalf of the church and, and, and asked him to forgive me. And they embraced me. They, they held me. 
And, and the day was eight hours long, incredible worship, tons of prayer. So that moment is almost lost in the recollection of it. But it was important, critically important. Well, get what, guess what happens? So it's three months later, and his name is Dove. Dove reaches out to me. He goes, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you. And I said, sure. And so we sit down. We go to Pop it over there off of Jimmy Carter, and we sit down to have lunch. And, and he goes, I've never been to a deal like that ever. Like what that deal was, he goes, I've been to these reconciliation meetings and Jews and Christians because I've never been to anything like what that was. That was, that was, he goes, I'm I'm dumbfounded. I don't have words. He goes, it was was astounding. And he said, uh, he goes, and it was moving. He goes, the way you repented to us, it was was moving. He goes, I would say, you know, he's, I'm trying to summarize what he said, but he basically it ministered to me. He didn't use that word. It, it, it moved my heart. And he, and he said, what is it? Why are you thinking like that? And I just said, well, you know, we're believers in Jesus. We believe he's the Jewish Messiah, and we love Jesus, so we love you. We see Jesus as people. And we had this long dialogue at Papado. It was, it was fantastic. But he said, tell me about your church. What are you guys like? And I said, well, our church is a little different. I said, we actually do 24-7 live worship. He goes, really? I go, yeah. I go, do you know where we would get that? Do you have any thoughts? He goes, no. I go, we get that from David's tabernacle. He goes, what? What? I go, have you heard of David's tabernacle? He goes, no. I go, never heard of it. He goes, no. I go, well, a lot of people haven't. I thought maybe you might. But anyway, so I, so I start explaining night and day prayer in David's tabernacle and how it was the center of the kingdom. And he's sitting there aghast. He's got his, his chin is on, like on the table. Like, I, I've never heard of such a thing. I go, it's true. I go, it's, and I give him the, the references. I'm quoting the Old Testament. He's like, I, I, do, I recognize those books. I go, I go, I'm surprised you never heard of such a thing. He goes, I never heard of that. He goes, it is, com-. He, he said this, he goes, it's compelling to me that your church is based off of David's tabernacle. He goes, that's surprising and compelling. And I said, yeah. He goes, you should talk to one of our rabbis, <laughs> you know. I go, I don't know if they'd like to, we probably just stand there and stare at each other, try to convert each other all day. But I realized there is a recognition of Jesus as Messiah, but that he is a Jewish man and that the, the, the root system of our faith, you know, it's not like the church and Christianity is some different thing. It's the extension of the Old Testament. And this idea for him was a brand new thought. And this concept of a loving people who believe in this Jewish Jesus who actually cared about Jewish people, it was, it was moving and compelling to him. And I just got to see for just a, just, just a little bit, just a, just a seed of what it's like when a Jewish person expresses, experiences genuine love from the church. Now, I think it's going to explode and be so much more intense and and I think in a day when the whole earth is, is standing against Israel and they look around and they find, man, 
our only friends are these people that believe in Jesus. That is going to speak loudly. That's going to speak voluminously. The whole earth is going to be thinking we need to destroy Israel, except for the Christians are going to be saying, we want to stand with you. That's this point of provoking that Paul is making. Massive Gentile harvest, all Israel will be saved, and God has chosen in their hardness of heart to raise up a, a, a Gentile church to provoke Israel to jealousy because they so evidence the glory of God upon them and the love of God manifest through them. Does that make sense? Oh, if we could get a vision for, to become a people like that. Well, it starts with loving our neighbor. It starts with being one with the person in the chair next to you and across the room. But oh, that it would turn into this thing where we would stand with boldness for Israel in an hour when the earth wants nothing but her, her extinguishment. All right, finally, verse 28 through 36. Now I want you to go back and I want you to look at these verses and read them and look at the notes and let it wash over you. Get this down in your heart. Get it down in there. But in 28 through 36, man, he explodes. And he basically, my way, I would say, he goes, who can lead like you? There is no one like you. Who could think up this plan? Nobody could think up this plan. And it's in there that we get this statement that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. I appreciate how that's been used over the years. It's not about your preaching ministry. It's just not. It's not about your singing career. It's about God's covenantal promises to Israel. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's my point I made last week. When you read Paul and you actually read him in context, you can't get to the idea that somehow Israel is out. He makes such emphatically strong statements. And he goes, oh, who could lead like you? You, oh, the depths of the wonders the riches of your grace and mercy. Who can lead like you? It's powerful. All right, so that's how he, he lands the chapter. Okay, I'm landing the plane four parts in four minutes. These are summary, and we'll get into them in detail next week. So he highlights this clear four-part plan, and it's the, God's process to bring Israel and to bring the Gentile nations into salvation, like we've said. He's going to bring all the nations, this massive number of Gentiles, into fullness of salvation and fullness of maturity. And then all the Jews alive on the planet at the time will be saved. All Israel shall be saved. Some people take that and they go, see, every Jew ever will get saved. No, no, no. They all have to come in through Jesus. But it's all the Jews alive on the planet at the time will be saved. So here's what it is. Here's the four-part plan, and we'll go into depths of it next week. First, there's a temporary spiritual blindness on the Jewish people. God said, if, you know, basically it was this. If you'll say yes to me, we'll shine the glory of God through you. If you say no to me, I'll shine the glory of God through you. That's exactly what he does. Because your blindness is going to bring life to the Gentiles. Your richness is going to bring life to the Gentiles. He goes, I can do this either way. It's exactly what he says in Romans 9 about Pharaoh. He goes, I raised him up to be able to declare my name through him. Pharaoh could have said, 
okay, I bowed the knee to Moses, and God of Israel is the God of everything. But instead, he, he says, no, I hardened my heart, I hardened my heart. He goes, you're hardening your heart? He goes, I'll harden your heart. He goes, watch this, 10 plagues. Watch this, Red Sea. Watch your army till all the other nations in the earth heard about the glory of God through who? Pharaoh. It's the exact same thing he's saying through Israel. He goes, I covenanted with you one way or another. My name will be great through you. So they're in a temporary moment of spiritual blindness. Secondly, there is a fullness of salvation and maturity coming to Gentiles, which, let me just say this, that when people get down in the mouth about the church in the West, and I appreciate why they would get that way, they feel negative about maybe that we're lukewarm, I, I do believe that, and I believe we've got to come out of lukewarmness, I understand that, but there is a fullness coming, there is a fullness coming to the church church in America, the church in the Western world is going to be a bright, shining bride. There's massive revival coming. It's coming. Otherwise, God's a liar, and he's not. The bride in the West will be stunning with the glory of God. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and that will provoke Israel to seek Jesus for salvation. It's incredible. Thirdly, all Israel will be saved. All Jews alive on the planet at that time will get born again. And finally, this fullness of Israel will be God's mechanism to release his glory all over the earth. It's just like what he promised through Israel to begin with, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. His glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, it's going to come through the witness of Israel in the age to come. Israel's going to be the leader nation. They are going to lead all the nations in the knowledge of God. They are going to be this diadem in the hand of the Lord. There's so many verses that God has promised over Israel. They will lead the entire earth in the manifestation of his glory in the age to come cliffhanger perfect way to end let's pray thank you lord so next week we'll go into detail on these four points some of you are unaware of the age to come we'll go into detail on some of that thank you lord lord we love you your word is truth your word is rich your word is light and i thank you for releasing light on our minds opening the eyes of our understanding, giving us clarity. We want to know your purposes. We want to know your thoughts, your unveiling drama. We want to know that. So thank you for teaching us from the scripture. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. I'm not the teacher. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. Thank you for unveiling to us truth. Cause our hearts to resonate with your heart and lord where there's been haughtiness to to enter in in any way i'm asking that you would humble us and let us see the way you see especially regarding your people israel and your plans for them 